Welcome to Damn Good Movie Memories with your host, Ryan Davis. This podcast is the cure for your long commute and super boring work day. In this modern age, perfect. too many people have lost sight of the true meaning of Christmas. Mom! Hush! Shut up, Ralphie! So now, in the spirit of the original... I made you! Stop! Tradition. American Christmas. Thanks a lot! MGM presents A Christmas Story. Dancing through the snow. Uncle, 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 A Christmas story. Come on! The movie that pulls off Santa's beard. And unwraps the secrets. Did they get a tie this year? Of the original, traditional. He looks like a deranged Easter bunny. 100% two fisted, red blooded. It's smiling at me. All American Christmas. A Christmas story. Hey there, it's Brian Davis, and for this week's episode, we're going to cover the Christmas classic, A Christmas Story, from 1983. The studio was MGM. The release date was November 18, 1983. The running time, 93 minutes, with the rating of PG. The budget was $3.3 million, and the box office took in $19.2 million, making it the 39th ranked movie of 1983. Rotten Tomatoes gives it 89% fresh from 57 reviews. Their critics' consensus is both warmly nostalgic and darkly humorous. A Christmas Story deserves its status as a holiday perennial. Roger Ebert at the time gave it 3 out of 4 stars, and here's his review. Of course, that's what I kept saying during A Christmas Story, every time the movie came up with another one of its memories about growing up in the 1940s. Of course, any nine-year-old kid in the 40s would passionately want for Christmas a a Daisy brand Red Ryder repeating BB carbine with a compass mounted in the stock. Of course. And of course, his mother would say, you'll shoot your eye out. That's what mothers always said about BB guns. I grew up in downstate Illinois. The hero of this film, Ralphie, grew up in Gary, Indiana. Looking back over a distance of more than 30 years ago, the two places seem almost identical. Middle America outposts, where you weren't trying to keep up with the neighbors, you were trying to keep up with Norman Rockwell. 
The movie is based on a nostalgic comic novel named In God We Trust, All Others Pay Cash by Gene Shepard, the radio humorist who also narrates it. He remembers the obvious things like fights with the boys at school and getting into impenetrable discussions with younger kids who do not quite know what all the words mean. He remembers legendary school teachers and hiding in the cupboard under the sink and having fantasies of defending the family home with a BB gun. But he also remembers warmly and with love the foibles of parents. The old man in A Christmas Story is played by Darren McGavin as an enthusiast. Not an enthusiast of anything, just simply an enthusiast. When he wins a prize in a contest and it turns out to be a table lamp in the shape of a female leg and a garter, he puts it in the window because it's the most amazing lamp he has ever seen. Of course, I can understand that feeling. I can also understand the feeling of the mother, Melinda Dillon, who is mortified beyond words. The movie's high point comes at Christmas time when Ralphie Peter Billingsley goes to visit Santa Claus. Visits to Santa Claus are more or less standard in the works of this genre, but this movie has the best visit to Santa I've ever seen. Santa is a workaholic, processing kids relentlessly. He has one helper to spin the kid and deposit him on Santa's lap, and another to grab the kid when the visit is over and hurl him down a chute to his parents below. If the kid doesn't want to go, he gets Santa's boot in his face. Of course. And that's the end of Ebert's review. This movie is really where home video allowed movies that didn't do particularly well at the box office to garner brand new audiences. And like most folks, I remember seeing this movie the first time on home video. And now the film runs like a 24-hour marathon on cable starting on Christmas Eve through Christmas Day. My friends and I would recite dialogue from this film constantly growing up. It really was our Christmas story growing up. Okay, let's get into the main cast. You have Peter Billingsley plays Ralphie. Billingsley will forever be known for his role as Ralphie, but he is currently a very successful TV show and documentary producer. At the time of the movie, Billingsley was an up-and-coming child actor appearing in commercials, films, and TV movies. He would go on to star in a few other childhood favorites of mine, like The Dirt Bike Kid and Ruskies. Darren McGavin plays the old man, and even though Billingsley is technically the main actor of the film, McGavin is the most important character in this film, and he just steals the show. Nobody could have played this role better than McGavin, and a bit, I'll tell you who was the first choice to play the role of the old man. McGavin's career started in the late 1940s on Broadway, and he ended up being a staple during the advent of television. He appeared on countless shows. He did appear in a few films in the 1950s, like The Man with the Golden Arm with Frank Sinatra. But his main starring roles on TV shows included Mike Hammer, which was based on the Mickey Spillane character, and Kolchak, which began as two TV movies, but they were so successful they turned it into a series. And Kolchak was definitely a precursor to shows like The X-Files. Melinda Dillon plays Mother Parker, and her career began in the late 1960s, appearing on a few TV shows. But her big break was in the hilarious 1977 film Slapshot with Paul Newman, where she plays one of Newman's road hookups. She would continue to land bigger roles in films like Close Encounters of the Third Kind with Richard Dreyfuss, and Fist with Sylvester Stallone, and Absence of Malice again with Paul Newman and Sally Field. The director was Bob Clark, and I went through Clark's early career in the Porky's episode, so between the original Porky's and A Christmas Story, Clark directed only one film, and that was the sequel to Porky's, which he wasn't thrilled about doing, but because the first film was so successful, of course, the studio demanded a sequel, and he used this leverage to eventually get A Christmas Story greenlit. 
And who would have guessed that without the raunchy comedy Porky's, a beloved family classic like A Christmas Story would have never been made. Okay, let's get into the making of the film. So again, the movie is based on a collection of stories, not just one tale, from Gene Shepard called In God We Trust All Others Pay Cash. Shepard would often go to colleges, like on spoken word tours, and then tell all these stories to those audiences. And Bob Clark was a huge fan of Shepard's work after hearing a radio broadcast featuring him and was determined to eventually make a film of Shepard's work. And as I teased earlier, Jack Nicholson was the first choice for the old man character before Darren McGavin was cast. Nicholson actually liked the script, but the studios likely didn't want to pay the large salary that he would have garnered since this was a small-budget film. And as much as I love Jack Nicholson, this role was meant for Darren McGavin, without a doubt, and we'll get more into that once we talk about the film. Melinda Dillon was selected by Bob Clark after her work in Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Bob Clark, before shooting, took the kids up to Canada for a two-day dry run to kind of develop a rapport between them. And it was a smart move because the kids bonded and truly enjoyed being together, which, of course, translated on screen. The kids had a blast making the film and pulled all sorts of pranks when they were staying in the hotel together. Water balloons being dropped from the windows along with wet toilet paper rolls. Yeah, you remember when toilet paper wasn't such a hot commodity? Uh, they'd make crank calls to the older actors and order lots of food and then have it delivered to them. <laughs> and then they knock on doors and act like they were the housekeepers and then, of course, run away. Because most of Ralphie's lines are from the narration of Gene Shepard playing the adult Ralphie, Peter Billingsley didn't actually have a ton of lines in the film. So much of his acting was his facial expressions and body language. And often, Bob Clark would read the narration out loud off-camera so that Billingsley would know how to react on-camera. Okay, let's get into the film. It takes place in Indiana in the late 1930s and early 1940s, though nothing is ever specified about the location or the year in the film. The main house, though, was shot in Cleveland, while other parts were shot in Toronto. The story is, of course, narrated by Gene Shepard, who is the adult voice of Ralphie looking back at his childhood years, specifically one year during Christmas time. And this sort of narration definitely inspired the TV show The Wonder Years a few years later. Ralphie, played by Peter Billingsley, and his younger brother Randy, played by Ian Petrella, and Ralphie's two school friends, Flick, Scott Schwartz, and Schwartz, played by Artie Robb, are running around downtown one night a few weeks before Christmas time and looking at a department store display window, which has all the big toys for that season. Randy in particular is hilarious as he smushes his nose against the glass while looking at the display. In this display window, you see toy trains, planes, tanks, dolls, and wagons, but Ralphie has his eyes set on only one item, a Red Rider 200-shot air rifle. This is all Ralphie wants for Christmas, and his whole world is focused on just getting this one thing. And Gene Shepard narrates this beautifully. Ralphie's determination to get this one present perfectly sums up what it's like to be a kid, when that one gift essentially becomes all you can focus on. Nothing else matters in that tiny little world. The next morning, Ralphie continues to dream and scheme to try to convince his parents, Melinda Dillon and Darren McGavin, to get him the gun for Christmas. Unfortunately, when his mom asks him what he wants for Christmas during breakfast, he blurts out exactly what he wants, and she retorts with the dreaded, no, you'll shoot your eye out, which is a re reoccurring sentiment throughout the film. Also, during this memorable and hilarious breakfast scene, <laughs> Ralphie's father, which is only known as the old man in the, in the film, enters a trivia contest in which the question is, 
What is the name of the Lone Ranger's nephew's horse? Mom knows the answer, and she says it's Victor, and this bit of knowledge will come into play later in the film for yet another memorable scene. Also at this great breakfast scene, watching Randy not want to eat his oatmeal is hilarious, <laughs> because when he does eventually eat, he begrudgingly shoves part of it around his mouth as it pours back into the bowl. <laughs> Randy really is the other unsung hero of the film with his physical comedy throughout the movie. More on that a bit. One of the great parts about the film are the great little side fantasy vignettes that Ralphie has when he's daydreaming. The first one is at the breakfast table when he saves his family from robbers with his good old trusty Red Ryder BB gun. Mothers know nothing about creeping marauders burrowing through the snow toward the kitchen where only you and you alone stand between your tiny, huddled family and insensate evil. Red Rider Carbine Action 2 on the shot range model air rifle. Lucky I got a compass in the stock. Well, I think I better have a look here. Oh, he's not. But we go back to reality, and again, the person who steals the show throughout the film is Darren McGavin. Nobody, again, could have played this character better than McGavin. I love how his gibberish is supposed to be cursing at his hated furnace. It's just brilliant. My old man was one of the most feared furnace fighters in northern Indiana. Junk. That hot damn walls is froze up. Some men are Baptists, others Catholics. My father was an Oldsmobile man. Son of a bitch would freeze up in the middle of summer on the equator. Little pitcher. It's a clinker! That blasted, stupid furnace, that gummit! Skates! <laughs> oh, for Christ's sake, open! 
In the heat of battle, my father wove a tapestry of obscenity that, as far as we know, is still hanging in space over Lake Michigan. <laughs> Next, we get the great physical comedy from Randy, as his mother decides to get him ready to go to school by putting every item of clothing that he owns onto his body. <laughs> Preparing to go to school was like getting ready for extended deep-sea diving. Come on, Mom! We're going to be late! All right, Ralph. My kid brother looked like a tick about the pop. What? What is it? What is it? Oh. What is it? I can't put my arms down. Well, put your arms down when you get to school. can't overstate how well Ian Petrella at such a young age played that role of Randy and whether it be his facial expressions or him going completely limp while getting dressed by his mom or walking around like Frankenstein with his arms outstretched to of course writhing around in the snow because he can't get up it's all just fabulous. So the kids are at school and after a good morning prank on their teacher Miss Shields where all the kids put fake teeth in to greet her, it is then quickly recess and Schwartz dares Flick to stick his tongue to a frozen pole to prove that a tongue would really stick in freezing temperatures. It's another memorable scene in a movie filled with them.
You're full of beans and so's your old man. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Says who? Says me. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I double dare you. The exact exchange and nuance of phrase in this ritual is very important. Huh. Are you kidding? Stick my tongue to that stupid pole that's dumb. That's because you know it'll stick. You're full of it. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Like double dog dare you. Now it was serious. A double dog dare. What else was left but a triple dare you? And finally, the coup de grace of all dares, the sinister triple really dog dare. I triple dog dare you. Hmm. Schwartz created a slight breach of etiquette by skipping the triple dare and going right for the throat. All right, all right. stiffened, his lips curled in a defiant sneer. There was no going back now. This is next. wasn't he? Ralphie, do you know where Flick is? I said, has anyone seen Flick? Yes, Esther Jane. Oh, my God! After this movie came out, you couldn't simply dare someone to do anything. You had to triple dog dare them, whatever that means, but it sounded vicious. Plus, it's hilarious that they can't help their friends simply because the bell rang. The school bell meant everything in school. So for that pole scene, the actual pole was built to have a hole in it, and then they placed the tube inside, and it sucked air in so that Scott Schwartz's tongue would stay intact with the pole. And actually, to play a real prank on him during the filming... 
the entire crew and actors decided during one take to leave Schwartz to leave him stuck to the pole, just like in the movie. And then they ran away. <laughs> back to the film. Poor Flick comes back to class with a bandage tied around his tongue. <laughs> Miss Shield tries to guilt the kids into admitting who put Flick up to sticking his tongue to the pole, but they're smart enough to stay quiet. The kids then get an assignment to write an essay. Back then, it was called a theme, and it is about what they wanted for Christmas that season. While the entire class groans, Ralphie perks up because he thinks this will be his ticket to getting the BB gun of his dreams for Christmas. So school ends that day, and the boys are walking home, and we are introduced to the two local bullies, Scott Farkas and his little sidekick, Grover Dill. And I think everyone, including myself, when I for years when I saw this movie, I thought Farkas's name was Scott, but it's really Scut with a U, which makes it even more rotten of a name. Boy, could you see how it stuck? Did it hurt, Flick? Nah. I knew that's not the thing. It just caught me off guard. You sure weren't balling. I never balled. Ah, baloney. <laughs> Scott Farkas, what a rotten name. We were trapped. There he stood between us and the alley. Scott Farkas staring out at us with his yellow eyes. He had yellow eyes, so help me God, yellow eyes. his crummy little toady mean rotten his lips curled over his green teeth randy lay there like a slug it was his only defense world you were either a bully a toady or one of the nameless rabble of victims all right who's next The line, Randy laid there like a slug. It was his only defense. Makes me laugh every time. <laughs> Plus, with yellow eyes, I think Farkas likely had jaundice, but that would make sense. Anyway, all is quickly forgotten as Ralphie races home to write his essay. The subtle nuances of the film's dialogue is just fabulous. If you listen to Ralphie read part of his essay, he gives the standard, I want this BB gun for Christmas with a compass in the stocking and this thing <laughs> that tells time. <laughs> exactly what a kid would say at that age. I don't know exactly what I want, but I want it because it tells time. And he doesn't want a crappy gift like a football. More foreshadowing of things to come. Next, the old man comes home in pure joy for once as he's been informed that he won the trivia contest about the Lone Ranger's nephew's horse. Even the seven smelly hound dogs from next door, the Bumpuses, who leave everyone alone except for the old man, can't bring down his cheerful mood. The old man thinks his prize will be huge, like a bowling alley. <laughs> we then cut to dinner time, 
And one of my favorite scenes is when Randy, quote-unquote, eats his meatloaf. Every family has a kid who won't eat. My kid brother had not eaten voluntarily in over three years. Oh, Randy, don't play with your food. Eat it. Oh, Starving people would be happy to have that. Can I have some more red cabbage? Mm. You stop playing with your food or I'll give you something to cry about. You better stop fooling around with that and eat it or you'll be sorry. Mm. <sighs> oh, oh, can I please have some more? My mother had not had a hot meal for herself in 15 years. Meatloaf, meatloaf, double beatloaf. I hate meatloaf. All right. All right, I'll get that kid to eat. Where's my screwdriver and my plumber's helper? I'll open up his mouth and I'll shove it in. Randy. My mother was more subtle. How do the little piggies go? That's right. Oik, oik. Now, show me how the piggies eat. This is your trough. Show me how the piggies eat. You good boy. Show me how the piggies eat. The other the priceless thing about Randy is his laugh. I, I wonder how many kids tried this eating maneuver after seeing this film. Also, the fact that the old man and Ralphie couldn't get up from the table to serve themselves instead of, and they just have their mom always do it is crazy. <laughs> Maybe it was a product of the era. In any case, after Randy's eating exhibition, there's a knock at the door and the old man is excited beyond belief to re- receive his major award. Plus, we learned some Italian. Two more. Two more. That's it. Watch the lady. Thanks a lot, guys. Merry Christmas. Get the crowbar and a hammer, Ralph. Ah, fragile. It must be Italian. Well, I think that says fragile, honey. Oh, yeah. There we go. Jeez, did a job on this, you know. Well, it, it, 
It's a leg! But what is it? Yeah, well, it, it, it's a, a leg, you know, like in a statue. Statue? Yeah, statue, right? Yeah, statue. Ralphie? My mother was trying to insinuate herself between us and the statue. Holy smoke, would you? Do you know what this is? This is a lamp. It was indeed a lamp. Isn't that great? What a great lamp. No. Uh, hey, hold it. Hold it here. The old man's eyes boggled. Oh, wow. Overcome by art. And I know just the place for it. Right in the middle of our front room window. We can't say I'm busy. Yeah, but what is that? It's a major award. A major award? Shucks, I wouldn't have known, Dad. It looks like a lamp. Well, there's a lamp, you nincompoop, but it's a major award. I want it. Damn hell, you say you want it? Yeah. Yeah, mind power, sweet mind power. The entire neighborhood was turned on. Oh, you should see what it looks like from out here. It could be seen up and down Cleveland Street. The symbol of the old man's victory. Yeah, he won that. It's a major award. <laughs> Having Ralphie constantly touching the leg lamp is hilarious, as his mom is completely freaked out about having that thing in the house, let alone the front window. We also get to see Ralphie and Randy sitting in front of a giant radio just listening, which, of course, was before the advent of television. This is what people would do. I would have been right at home during this era. Also, the person that the old man is bragging to in the street after his major award was director Bob Clark. And speaking of the wonderful leg lamp, director Bob Clark hid the lamp from everyone until the actual scene was filmed, so the reactions from the actors were genuine. The next day, Ralphie turns in his essay to Miss Shields, and we get another great fantasy daydream. I knew I was handing Miss Shields a masterpiece. Maybe Miss Shields, in her ecstasy, would excuse me from theme writing for the rest of my natural life. 
down the drain. I said he can only do don't appear it. F! Oh, I should wish they were having to read one more. F! Ralphie. Take your seat now. Take your seat. That night, the family goes to buy a Christmas tree, but returning home, they get a flat tire, and Ralphie helps the old man change the tire. But unfortunately for Ralphie, things don't go as planned. Actually, my old man Luff, he always saw himself in the pits of the Indianapolis Speedway in the 500. Uh-huh. Yeah. My old man's spare tires were actually only tires in the academic sense. They were round. They had once been made of rubber. Ralphie, yes? why don't you go help your father? Really? Can I? Yeah. Watch the traffic there. Okay. It was the first time that it had been suggested that I go help my father with anything. What are you doing here? M Mom said that I should help. Oh, oh yeah? Yeah. Okay, sit down here. Squat down. Hey, yeah, I'll hold this here. No, not that way, not that way. Go on, come on, Rattrap. Pull it like this, eh? Oh, like this. I want to put the nuts in it. Okay. Yeah, there we are. Nice for it. And we got it. 
Linda Dillon's scream is priceless, as is the screaming from the upcoming phone call she makes after Ralphie blames another kid for the language he used. Over the years, I got to be quite a connoisseur of soap. My personal preference is for Lux, but I found Palmolive had a nice, piquant, after-dinner flavor. Heady, but with just a touch of mellow smoothness. Life Boy, on the other hand... <laughs> You ready to tell me? All right. Where did you hear that word? Now, I had heard that word at least ten times a day from my old man. My father worked in profanity the way other artists might work in oils or clay. It was his true medium, a master. But I chickened out, and I blurted out the first name that came to mind. Schwartz! Oh, I see. Hello, Mrs. Schwartz? Yes, I'm fine. Um, Mrs. Schwartz, do you know what Ralph just said? <sighs> no. He said... No, not that! Yes, that! Do you know where he heard it? Probably from his father. No! He heard it from your son. What? 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 Oh, what did I do, Mom? Why didn't you know that? Oh, 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 oh. Another shot of mysterious, inexorable official justice. Rinse out and go to bed. So who am I glad you finished your homework this afternoon? So I want you getting right into bed and I don't want to see any lights on. You are being punished, so no comic book reading. I'm going to come in there and if there are any lights on, don't you give me that look. You're going to get it. I, <laughs> I always crack up from the, the reply from the mom. Uh, it, probably from his father. 
And the mother's voice is hilarious. Do kids still get soap in their mouths? I mean, th- those were good times. Uh, plus, Schwartz getting a thrashing from his mom was payback for his dare to flick and the and the frozen pole. And this leads to another hilarious daydream from Ralphie about the after effects of soap in the mouth. There has never been a kid who didn't believe, vaguely but insistently, that he would be stricken blind before he reached 21, and then they'd be sorry. to this lowly stage. Please tell us no matter how it hurts. What did we do? No, I, I can't. Oh, please, please. Ralph, I must know what we did. What brought you to this? Please. Please. Please? It, it, it was? Yes. Yes. So poisoning. Get along somehow. I'll never forgive myself. Thanks, Mom. I told you not to use life, boy. The great part about all of the daydreams is that Ralphie always still appears as a child, he never grows up. So while the old man was happy to win his major award from a trivia contest in the newspaper, Ralphie himself entered a radio contest for the Little Orphan Annie radio show. However, things again don't go as planned for our hero. Be it known to all and sundry that Ralph Parker is hereby appointed a member of the Little Orphan Annie Secret Circle and is entitled to all the honors and benefits occurring there too. Signed, Little Orphan Annie. Countersigned, Pierre Andre in ink. Honors and benefits already at the age of nine. Come on, let's get on with it. I don't need all that jazz about smugglers and pirates. Listen tomorrow night for the concluding adventure of the Black Pirate Ship. Now it's time for Annie's secret message for you members of the Secret Circle. Remember, kids. Only members of Annie's secret circle can decode Annie's secret message. Remember, Annie is depending on you. Set your pins to B2. Here is the message. 12, 11, I am in my first secret meeting. 14, 11, 18, 16. Pierre was in great voice tonight. I could tell that tonight's message was really important. Three. 25, that's a message from Annie herself. Remember, don't tell anyone. 90 seconds later, I'm in the only room in the house where a boy of nine could sit in privacy and decode. <laughs> ah, B. <laughs> I went to the next. E. The first word is B. S. It was coming easier now. 
you. <laughs> come on, come on, Grumpy. Grumpy. I got I'll be right down, Ma. Gee whiz. Gee. Oh, be sure to. Be sure to what? What was little orphan Annie trying to say? Be sure no, to what? Annie has got to go. Will you please come out? All right, Ma. I'll be right out. I was getting closer now. The tension was terrible. What was it? The fate of the planet may hang in the balance. No, Annie's gotta go! I'll be right out! Find out loud! She almost there! My fingers flew. My mind was a steel trap. Every pore vibrated. It was almost clear. Yes, 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 yes! Be sure to drink your Ovaltine. Ovaltine? A crummy commercial? Son of a bitch. That, the brilliant part about that scene by Bob Clark is how dramatic he makes it with the music and the narrating and having the mom frantically banging on the door because Randy's got to go to the bathroom so badly. Well, if you think that Ralphie was disappointed by being hoodwinked by advertising, he's got nothing on the old man that night when a catastrophic accident occurs. Red cabbage? Mm, that's for tomorrow night. You love red cabbage, Ralphie. What happened next was a family controversy for years. You shut and shift a pacifier! You snort, punger, laymonger, stack a shell, cocker! What was that? What happened? What I don't know what happened. I was watering my plant and I broke your lamp. Did you, did you touch that? You were always jealous of this lamp. Jealous of a plastic Jealous. Lamp? Jealous because I won. Ridiculous. Jealous. Jealous of what? That is the ugliest lamp I have ever seen in my entire life! Now it was out. Get the glue. We're out of glue. You use up all the glue on purpose. The old man stood quivering with fury, stammering as he tried to come up with a real crusher. All they got out was... Not a finger!
with as much dignity as he could muster, the old man gathered up the sad remains of his shattered major award. Later that night, alone in the backyard, he buried it next to the garage. Now, I could never be sure, but I thought that I heard the sound of taps being played. Gently. Not a finger! <laughs> the next day at school, Ralphie initially evades a pounding from the bullies, Farkas and Grover Dill, but he can't avoid the wrath of Miss Shields' grade for his essay. In general, you did very well. However... I was disappointed in the margins. Oh, this is it. C plus. Oh, no, it can't be. C plus? C plus? <laughs> C plus? <laughs> I was surrounded by happier kids who were all going to get what they wanted for Christmas. And if things can't get any worse for Ralphie, after school he still has to deal with Farkas. But what Farkas doesn't realize is you shouldn't mess with a kid who has nothing to lose after nothing has been going his way. When I tell you to come, you better come. What, are you gonna cry now? Come on, cry, baby, cry for me. Come on, cry. <laughs> Deep in the recesses of my brain, a tiny red-hot little flame began to grow. A fuse blew, and I had gone out of my skull. Conscious that a steady torrent of obscenities and swearing of all kinds was pouring out of me as I screamed.
the greatest part about the whole scene, <laughs> that last uh, scene where Ralphie beats up Farkas, is the mom doesn't even bother to help up Farkas, who is bleeding profusely due to the beating from Ralphie. <laughs> Screw him anyway. Also, the faux swearing that Ralphie spews wasn't really made up on the spot by Billingsley. Gene Shepard wrote all of those made-up words in the script, and Billingsley spent days memorizing them. Also, instead of ratting out Ralphie for kicking some ass and swearing like his father battling the furnace, she covers for him, which forever endears his views towards his mother. And Randy might have helped, too. What you crying for? Daddy's gonna kill Ralphie! Oh, no, he's not. Yes, he is, no, too! No, he's not. I promise you, Daddy is not going to kill Ralphie. Why don't you come on out of there? No? Would you like some milk? You would? Here you go. All right. I'll see you later. Okay. Bye-bye. Oh, you got to love that kid. And the face that Darren McGavin gives when Randy comes out from under the sink for dinner is priceless. That night, Ralphie has an epiphany. As he realizes his only hope to get his BB gun is that he has to go to the big man himself, Santa. And while he's waiting in the long line to see Santa, he has to deal with the most random weirdo kid wearing flying goggles. <laughs> that kid always cracked me up. I like Santa. <laughs> Ralphie's reactions are just priceless. Yeah. The line waiting to see Santa Claus stretched all the way back to Terre Haute. And I was at the end of it. Merry Christmas. I like Santa. Yeah. Let's face it, most of us were scoffers, but moments before zero hour, it did not pay to take chances. Don't bother me. I'm a, I'm thinking. I like the wizard of Yeah. I like the tin. Come on, Randy. And what do you want for Christmas, Billy? A toy truck. Get him off my lap. Oh, I hate the smell of tapioca. Ho, ho, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Nine o'clock. Great Scott, the store is going to close. Santa can't wait all night. Let's go. Come on up on Santa's lap. Ho, ho, ho. Come up, ho, 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 ho,
I tried to remember what it was I wanted. I was blowing it, blowing it. Come on, kid. How about a nice uh, football? 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 What's a football? <laughs> With unconscious will, my voice squeaked out. Football. Okay, get him out of here. A football? Oh, no. Okay, what was kid. I doing? Wake up, stupid. Wake up. No. Ow. Shoot your eye out, kid. Merry Christmas. Ho, ho, ho. Oh, the Santa scene, as, as Ebert said, was just brilliantly written and acted. All of the prior buildup from the little hints of Ralphie not wanting the football to the punchline of shooting his eye out were all wrapped up in one scene. Just perfect. So the kids on set all love that slide and would try to use it as much as possible in between shooting. However, the boy who played Randy was truly terrified of the slide, just like in the film, and was really crying when he was going down the slide. And the scene in the department store was the real Higby's, which was a staple in Cleveland for over 100 years. We then cut back to the house, as it's Christmas Eve now, and the old man continues to tinker with the tree, and then blows out another fuse from all the Christmas lights on the tree. And the a million plugs that are in one socket. In any case, the boys end up going to sleep hoping and dreaming that they'll receive the gifts they want the next morning. The boys awake to a brilliant winter morning covered in fresh snow. They race downstairs to open up all their gifts, and Ralphie definitely gets a memorable gift. Wow! Whoopee! A zip A can of Simon Eyes. Ralphie, what did Aunt Clara give you show everybody? I don't want to. Ralphie, show everybody what Aunt Clara gave you. <sighs> Aunt Clara had for years labored under the delusion that I was not only perpetually four years old, but also a girl. She just always gives you the nicest things, Ralphie. Oh, my. Oh, isn't that sweet? Ralph, go upstairs and try it on. Anything. I don't want to. Go upstairs right now and try on that present. She went to all that trouble to make it. Now go on. While Ralphie is changing, I'm going to play Santa Claus. Now let me see. What can I find? Oh, I see something. Randy. This is for you, honey. Oh, 
Oh, and this is for Daddy. Here, I made you. Thanks a lot. I wonder what it could be. Well, only one way to find out, isn't there? Well, it's a blue ball. Oh, it's a bowling ball. <laughs> Thank you, darling. Thank you. Yes, very much. Very much. Ralphie, we're waiting. Oh, come on, Mom. Right now. Immediately, my feet began to sweat as those two fluffy little bunnies with the blue button eyes stared sappily up at me. Come down here so I can see you better. I just hoped that Flick would never spot him, as the word of this humiliation could easily make life at Warren G. Harding School a veritable hell. Oh, isn't that cute? That is the most precious thing I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> <laughs> he looks like a deranged Easter bunny. He does not. He does too. He looks like a pink nightmare. Are you happy wearing that? Do you want to take it off? Look, you tell the kid to take it off. All right, you'll only wear it when Aunt Clara visits. Go on and take it off. Take it off! So Peter Billingsley says he wasn't really acting when he was wearing the bunny costume. It was really hot and uncomfortable and not very fun for a 13-year-old boy to wear. But he still owns the costume to this day. So Ralphie is disappointed that his most memorable gift is the hideous bunny pajamas. But then Santa comes through. Though we all know it's the old man who actually has a good heart behind all of the bluster. That's the thing about the old man character. For all the loudness and gruffness... He was actually not the one who provided the punishment towards the kids. It was all implied. The kids feared him, though deep down, he really wasn't the disciplinarian. My God, would you look at that mess? Who's going to clean the papers up? Not me. Oh, oh no. no. Granny did it last year. Well, he can do it again. Mm. And this wine's not bad. Well, it's not good either, but he wants it. Yeah. No, you don't. No. Did you have a nice Christmas? Yeah, pretty nice. Yeah, did you get everything you wanted? Mm, almost. <laughs> almost, huh? Well, that's, that's, that's life. Well, there's always next Christmas. Yep. Hey, hey, that's funny. What's that over there behind the desk? Where? Oh, behind the desk against the wall over there. Why don't you go check it out? What? Santa Claus
Do, do you know how to load it? Yeah. Yeah? Careful. They run all over. Close her up. Close it up. Can I can I try it out, Ma? Can I? Okay. But outside. Oh, I still say those things are dangerous. No, no. Put on your galoshes and your coat. It's cold out. I had one when I was eight years old. What if he hurts himself? Yeah. Daddy, your coat! Don't shoot any animals or birds! Except the Bumpus' dogs! The sheer joy of seeing a kid get the gift that they really wanted for months or longer can't be matched. And Bill- Peter Billingsley just plays this scene perfectly. Also, the other wonderful part about that last scene is that throughout the film, Ralphie asked everyone for the gun except his father. And then the old man is the one that came through in the end. It's a really well put together plot point. So Ralphie tries his new gift, but the constant prophecy of owning a BB gun might finally come true. Okay, Black Bart, now you get yours. such swift and terrible retribution on a kid as a pair of busted glasses. Stop! Oh, no. Oh, no. Pulverized. It hits me in the eye. It would work. It had to work. Quickly, I whipped up some tears. Ralphie? What's the matter, honey? Oh, what happened? What is it? Let me see that. There was an icicle, and, and, and it fell off the garage, and it hit me. <laughs> so while Ralphie recovers from his minor injury, thank goodness for glasses, my favorite scene of all time occurs. Life is like that. Sometimes at the height of our revelries, when our joy is at its zenith, when all is most right with the world, the most unthinkable disasters descend upon us. Oh, 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 oh,
greatest delivery of a line in the history of film. The inflection in Darren McGavin's voice when he says, Sons of bitches! It's pure movie magic. It's definitely a line repeated often in my childhood. And, and who am I kidding? I still say it every year to this day. I'm actually surprised Ralphie didn't get in trouble for leaving the back door open, which let all the dogs in. So how do you recover from having Christmas dinner destroyed by seven smelly hound dogs? It's off to the local Chinese restaurant. Sing like this. Deck the horse with bows of holly. Fa la 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 la. Try again. Deck the horse with bows of holly. Ra 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 ra. Stop 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 stop. Sing something else. Jingle bell, jingle bell, jingle all the way. All my fun is to ride in a horse open sleigh. No, 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 no! Stop, 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 stop! Kitchen, bring food for customers. Oh, Yes, it's a beautiful duck. Yes, it really is. It's uh, uh but you see, uh, what? It, it's smiling at me. Okay. Christmas would live in our memories as the Christmas when we were introduced to Chinese turkey. <laughs> All was right with the world. That whole last scene is brilliant with the quick chopping of the duck's head while Melinda Dillon just screams. It's perfect in a genuine reaction because she was she was given the wrong script on purpose and she didn't know what the waiter was actually going to do. Also, the restaurant was a converted bowling alley. So if you go back and if you look closely, they knock out the W in the lights. So it reads, Bowling Chop Suey Palace. Also, uh, for the overly sensitive folks of today, you know, the nine people on Twitter, who might have a problem with the singing of the carol scene, Bob Clark in interviews has said that he discussed the scene before actually shooting it with the Asian actors, and they didn't have any issues because they admitted that they didn't exactly pronounce certain words perfectly due to their accent. And if you pay attention, the head waiter sings perfectly. And there you have it. No harm, no foul. Pun intended due to the duck getting its head chopped up. So after the 90 minutes of sheer madcap entertainment, the film ends actually on a peaceful and serene note. Next to me in the blackness lay my oil blue steel beauty. The greatest Christmas gift I had ever received or would ever receive. Gradually I drifted off to sleep, pranging ducks on the wing and getting off spectacular hip shots.
it really is a damn near perfect movie. And thank you to home video and cable for allowing people to discover the brilliance of it. And it will live on forever. All right, some fun facts. For whatever reason, the initial run of the film did not run during the two weeks leading up to Christmas. The film only ran for four weeks and it was pulled from most theaters, which was a huge mistake by the studios as the film definitely would have done well during those vital two weeks. The props department was terrific and almost all the magazine and toys were really vintage from the 1940s. It didn't actually snow that season in Cleveland, so all of the snow had to be imported in, along with manufacturing snow from detergent. Peter Billingsley, as a kid, always wanted a metal detector to go treasure hunting, though he said a BB gun would have been cool too. And speaking of the famous gun, here are some Daisy Red Rider facts. It was originally manufactured in Missouri, but the company began as an iron windmill company in 1888. A local inventor brought in a contraption which turned into the Red Rider BB gun. He showed it to the owner of the factory who tried it, and after shooting a hole through a target, said it was a daisy. After the windmill factory went out of business, they transitioned into making air guns and then changed the name of the company to Daisy after the name of of their main product. As for Red Rider, he was a popular comic book character which began in 1938 and ran up until 1965. But by 1947, Daisy was producing and selling over a million Red Rider BB guns a year. Gene Shepard, who wrote the story, always believed the Red Rider BB gun had a compass and sundial built into the gun. In reality, that particular model never included this, but a different model did. After a back and forth during the pre-production of the movie, the studio finally told Daisy to just build a special gun for the movie the way Shepard wrote it. During the filming, Peter Billingsley was the only actor to actually use the gun, and a prop guy was always around to make sure that he understood the safety measures before attempting to fire the gun. And like the bunny costume, Peter Billingsley owns the actual Red Rider gun from the film. So there was a deleted fantasy scene where Ralphie shoots aliens with Flash Gordon. Another daydream scene that was cut involved Miss Shields going to Ralphie's house to tell his parents what a wonderful kid he was, and that they just had to get him the BB gun for Christmas. Also, there was a Santa Claus scene on the roof of their house that was cut out as well. Teddy Moore, who played Miss Shields, was eight months pregnant at the time of filming. Miss Shields could not be shown as an unmarried mother in the 1940s, so the filmmakers padded the rest of her to match her belly, making her just appear stout. So in 2005, the original home that was used for the exterior shots was put up for auction on eBay, and an avid fan of the movie named Brian Jones purchased it directly from the seller for $150,000. Jones then spent the following year restoring the home the way it looked on screen. The exterior was completely restored, and the interior was renovated to match the interior of the home shown in the movie. Of course, as I had said before, parts of the interior were actually filmed in Toronto. So on November 25, 2006... The home finally opened its doors as a tourist attraction, and Jones spent close to half a million dollars in preparation for this grand opening. In addition, he also purchased the house next door and converted it to a gift shop and museum dedicated to the film and the house. And someday I will go there. Over 8,000 actors reportedly auditioned for the Ralphie character, including Will Wheaton. In the film, Ralphie was supposed to be 9 years old, but Peter Billingsley, who actually played him, was 12 going on 13. So while reading the newspaper at the kitchen table, the old man angrily mentions that the Sox traded Bullfrog. So this was a reference to a longtime Chicago White Sox pitcher named Bill Dietrich, whose nickname was Bullfrog. He pitched during the 1930s and 40s. He was never actually traded from the White Sox. He was released in September of 1946. He then played with the Philadelphia Athletics. 
So Bob Clark did direct a sequel to the film in 1994, which is, again, based on Shepard's stories. I've never seen it, but it's in my Netflix queue. That film stars Charles Grodin, Mary Steenburgen, and Kieran Culkin. So it was long rumored, and now confirmed because of the internet, that Scott Schwartz, who played Flick, worked in porn films when he got older. In the 1990s, he worked in the adult film industry in minor non-sexual roles and behind the scenes in numerous administrative roles. Now, Schwartz would eventually star in the adult films and sexual roles, and then he later quit in 2000. And I guess getting your tongue stuck to a pole can only lead to a certain lifestyle, I guess? Yeah, there we go. Anyway, this is an absolutely brilliant movie in my top 10 of all-time favorite movies, not just Christmas, but in general. I watch it as much as I can. I never get sick of it. It always makes me laugh. I think many people feel the same way. Now, something you may not have heard is Gene Shepard reading some of his stories, which became a Christmas story. And so I do have a radio program from 1974 where Gene Shepard reads some of these stories. And so I will tack it on at the end, and I think you will enjoy it. And I'll be back next week to talk about yet another random movie from a DVD collection. Okay, that's that's enough. That's enough. Enough of the theme tonight. We don't have that much time, and it's only 45 minutes or so, and it's Christmas Eve. And uh, for the last uh, six or seven years now, we have read this story, and I've gotten a lot of uh, requests for it. And it's uh, kind of a thing we always do on Christmas Eve, and it's a it's a short story that uh, originally appeared in Playboy. It's not really a short story. It was a chapter from. My novel, In God We Trust, All Others Pay Cash. And uh, the short story, it was not really a short story. As I said, the chapter was uh, appeared in Playboy, and that year won the Humor Award for that year for that particular story. However, this story uh, begins, and uh, the title of the story, uh, for those of you who have your tape recorder on, and it will be shortened and edited for use on the air, obviously, because it's a much longer story than I can do on the air, but it's very apropos for Christmas Eve. The story is called Duel in the Snow, or Red Rider Nails the Cleveland Street Kid. Now, the opening of the story, the I in the story is not me, by the way. It's a, it's, a, it's a universal I, and this particular I is named Ralph Parker, who's a New Yorker. And he's sitting in the Horn and Hardart, having a cup of coffee. And he begins to, uh, to think about the, the curious lure the toy guns have for kids. Kids all over the world are attracted to toy guns, whether or not their parents want them to do it or not. 
It's just a universal urge. Outside in the spanking December breeze, a Salvation Army Santa Claus listlessly tolled his bell, huddled in a doorway to avoid the direct blast of the wind. I sipped my coffee and remembered another Christmas, in another time, in another place, and a gun. I remember clearly, itchingly, nervously, maddeningly the first time I laid eyes on it, pictured in a three-color smeared illustration in a full-page back cover ad in Open Road for Boys, a publication which at the time had an iron grip on my aesthetic sensibilities and the dime that I had to scratch up every month to stay with it. It was actually an early playboy. It sold dreams, fantasies, incredible adventures, and a way of life. Its center fold-outs consisted of gigantic Kodiak bears charging out of the page at the reader to be gunned down in single hand-to-hand -hand combat by the 11-year-old killers armed only with hunting knife and fantastic bravery. Its Christmas issue weighed over seven pounds, its page crammed with the effluvia of the good life of male juvenilia, until the senses reeled and avariciousness, the growing desire to own everything, was almost unbearable. Today, there must be millions of ex-subscribers who still can't pass Abercrombie and Fitch without a faint, keening note of desire and the unrequited urge to glom onto all of it, just to have it, to feel it. Early in the fall, the first ad appeared. It was a magnificent thing of balanced copy and pictures, superb artwork, and subtly contrived catchphrases. I was among the very first hooked. I freely admit it. Boys! Boys! At last, you can own an official Red Rider carbine action 200-shot range model air rifle. This in block red and black letters surrounded by a large balloon coming out of Red Rider's own mouth, wearing his enormous 10-gallon Stetson, his jaw squared, staring out at me manfully and speaking directly to me eye to eye. In his hand was the knurled stock of as beautiful, as coolly deadly-looking piece of weaponry as I'd ever laid eyes on. Yes, fellows, Red Rider continued, under the gun. Yes, fellows, this 200-shot carbine action air rifle, just like the one I use in all my range wars, chasing them rustlers and bad guys, can be your own, your very own. It has a special built-in secret compass in the stock for telling the direction if you're lost on the trail, and also an official Red Rider sundial for telling time out in the wild. You just lay your cheek against this stock, sight over my own special design, cloverleaf sight, and you just can't miss. Tell Dad it's great for target shooting. And varmints, and it will make a swell, a swell Christmas gift. Wow. The next issue arrived, and Red Rider was even more insistent, now implying that the supply of Red Rider BB guns was limited, and to order now, and see your dealer gets them in before it's too late. It was the second ad that actually did the trick on me. It was late November, and the Christmas fever was well upon me. I thought about a Red Rider air rifle in all of my waking hours, seven days a week, in school and out. I drew pictures of it in my reader, in my arithmetic book, on my hand in indelible ink, on Helen Weather's dress in front of me, in crayon. For the first time in my life, the initial symptoms of genuine lunacy, of mania, had set in. I imagined innumerable situations calling for the instant and the irrevocable need for a BB gun. Great fantasies where I fended off creeping marauders burrowing through the snow toward the kitchen, 
where only I and I alone stood between our tiny huddled family and insensate evil. Masked bandits attacked my father to be mowed down by my trusted cloverleaf sighted deadly weapon. I seriously mulled over the possibility of an invasion of raccoons, of which there were several in the county. Acts of selfless chivalry defending Esther Jane Alberry from escaped circus tigers. Time and time again I saw myself a miraculous crack shot picking off sparrows on the wing to the gasps of admiring girls and envious rivals on Cleveland Street. There was one dream that involved my entire class getting lost on a field trip to the swamps, wherein I led the tired, hungry band back to civilization using only my Red Rider compass and sundial. There was no question about it. Not only should I have such a gun, it was an absolute necessity. Early December saw the first of the great blizzards of that year. The wind howling down out of the Canadian wilds a few hundred miles to the north had screamed over frozen Lake Michigan and hit Holman, laying on the town great drifts of snow and long, story-high icicles and sub-zero temperatures where the air cracked and sang. Newspaper or streetcar wires creaked on caked ice, and kids plodded to school through 45-mile-an-hour gales tilting forward like tiny furred radiator ornaments, moving stiffly over the barren, clattering ground. Preparing to go to school was about like getting ready for extended deep-sea diving. Long johns, corduroy knickers, checkered flannel lumberjack shirt, four sweaters, fleece-lined leatherette sheepskin coat, helmet, goggles, mittens with leatherette gauntlets, and a large star with an Indian cheese face in the middle, three pair of socks, high tops, overshoes, and a 16-foot scarf wound spirally from left to right until only the faint glint of two eyes peering out of a mound of moving clothing told you that there was a kid in the neighborhood. There was no question of staying home. It never entered anyone's mind. It was a hardier time, of course, and Miss Bodkin was a hardier teacher than the present breed. Cold was something that was accepted, like air, clouds, and parents, a fact of nature and as such could not be used in any fraudulent scheme to stay out of school. My mother would simply throw her shoulder against the front door, pushing back the advancing drifts and stone ice, the wind raking the living room rug with an angry fury for an instant, and we would be launched one after the other, my brother and I, like astronauts, into the unfriendly Arctic space. The door clanged shut behind us, and that was it. It was make school or die. Scattered over the icy wastes around us could be seen other tiny beferred jots of wind-driven humanity, all painfully toiling towards the Warren G. Harding School, miles away over the tundra, waddling under the weight of frost-covered clothing like tiny frozen bowling balls with feet. An occasional piteous whimper could be heard faintly, but lost instantly in the sigh of the eternal wind. All of us were bound for geography lessons involving the exports of Peru, reading lessons dealing with fat cats and dogs named Jack. But over it all, like a faint, thin, off-stage chorus, was the building excitement. Christmas was on its way. Each day was more exciting than the last because Christmas was one day closer. Lovely, beautiful, glorious Christmas around which the entire year revolved, at least the kid year. Off on the far horizon, beyond the railroad yards and the great refinery tanks, lay our own private mountain range, dark and mysterious, cold and uninhabited, 
outlined against the steel-gray skies of Indiana winter, the steel mills. They lay on the horizon like a mysterious black mountain range. Downtown Holman, Indiana, was prepared for its yearly bacchanalia of peace on earth and goodwill to men. Across Holman Avenue and State Street, the gloomy main thoroughfares drifted with snow that had lain for months and would remain until well into spring. Ice encrusted, frozen drifts along the curbs were strung strands of green and red Christmas bulbs and banners that snapped and cracked in the gale. From the streetlights hung plastic ivy wreaths surrounding three-dimensional Santa Claus faces. For several years, the windows of Goldblatt's department store had been curtained and dark. Their corner window was traditionally a major high-water mark of the pre-Christmas season. It set the tone, the motif, of their giant Yuletide Jubilee. Kids were brought in from miles around just to see the window. Old codgers would recall vintage years when the window had flowered more fulsomely than in ordinary times, and this was one of those years. The magnificent display was officially unveiled on a crowded Saturday night. It was an instant smash hit. First-nighters packed earmuff to earmuff, their steamy breath clouding up the sparkling plate glass, jostled in rapt admiration before a golden, tinkling panoply of, me of mechanicized, electronic joy. It was the heyday of the Seven Dwarfs and their virginal den mother, Snow White. Walt Disney's Seven Cutie Pies hammered and sawed, chiseled and painted, while Santa, bouncing Snow White on his mechanical knee, ho-ho-hoed through eight strategically placed loudspeakers, interspersed by choruses of, Hi-ho, hi-ho, it's off to work we go. Grumpy sat at the controls of a miniature eight-wheel Rock Island Road steam engine, and, and Sleepy played a marimba, while in the background, inexplicably, Mrs. Klaus ceaselessly ironed a red shirt. Sparkling artificial snow drifted down on Shirley Temple dolls. Flexible flyers and tinker toy sets glowed in the golden spotlight. In the foreground, a frontier stockade made of Lincoln logs was manned by a company of kilted lead highlanders who were doubtfully fending off an attack by six U.S. Army medium tanks. It was an incredible display. By the way, history has always been vague in Indiana. A few... A few feet away stood an Arthurian cardboard castle with Raggedy Andy sitting on the drawbridge, his feet in the moat through which a Lionel freight train burping real smoke went round and round. Dopey sat in Amos and Andy's pedal-operated fresh air taxi cab beside a stuffed panda holding a lollipop in his paw bearing the heart-tugging legend, Hug Me. From fluffy cotton clouds above, Dion quintuplet dolls wearing plaid golf knickers hung from billowing parachutes, having just bailed out of a high-flying balsawood Foker triplane. All in all, Santa's workshop made Salvador Dali look like Norman Rockwell. It was a good year. I'll be back in about two or three minutes here on WOR New York after we have a few brief breaks for a couple of spots on Christmas Eve. Someday you'll own, someday you'll own, sooner or later you'll own generals. Yeah, sooner or later you'll own generals, buddy. So, uh, on this Christmas Eve, we'll remind you that you go in snow or we pay to tow. That's guaranteed traction. 
And that's what you'll get from good old friendly General Tire. They got General's famous glass belt gripper 780 priced at just two for $54. And that's for popular size A7813, tubeless black wall. Very popular. It's way up on the hit parade. So check your yellow pages for the General Tire headquarters nearest you. Yeah, and let's see. Uh, here's a little quick reminder from Dell Paperbacks. They say that they have a book called In the Onion Field by one Joseph Wambaugh, a real-life suspense bestseller available now as a Dell Paperback. And uh, not only that, they have uh, another Dell book that you may find interesting. The greatest bestsellers. Books like Rebecca, Exodus, Hawaii. You don't just read them, you live them. Beulah Land by Lonnie Coleman is that kind of book. A sensational bestseller compared by many to Gone with the Wind. But Beulah Land is so frank it could only be published in our time. Beulah Land, the story of a great plantation in all its outward splendor and secret shame. Beulah Land, a Dell paperback bestseller. People at the Barnes & Noble bookstore would like to remind you that books make wonderful Christmas gifts. Hey, Phyllis, here's a book on sailing for your Uncle Ted. No, sailing was last year. Now he's into homemade wine and antique furniture. Oh, well, do we get him this wine book or one on antiques? Uh, why don't we get him both? How come you're so smart? <laughs> at Barnes & Noble, we've got a whole world of books to choose from, especially books for people who like to do things. For instance, we've got books for people who like to garden, books for cooks, books for backpackers, and just about anything else you can think of. In fact, we've got more books on how to do more things than any other bookstore in the world. And they all make thoughtful, enduring gifts for Christmas or any other occasion. So this year, bring your Christmas list to the Barnes & Noble Bookstore at 5th Avenue and 18th Street in Manhattan. And don't forget to put your own name on the list. After all, don't you deserve a book from Barnes & Noble, too, this Christmas? Disinfectant just about overpowers the evergreen in the patient's lounge. But the tree, hung with paper chains and stars, looks bravely festive anyway. To the children in this hospital, this tree is Christmas. To many, it's the most Christmas they've ever had. There are thousands of kids like this, poor, sick, handicapped, and retarded, in hospitals and institutions throughout the WOR area. Your gift to the WOR Children's Christmas Fund puts presents under the tree. Share Christmas. Send your check or money order to the WOR Children's Christmas Fund, Box 710, Times Square Station, New York 10036. Okay, let's get on with the story. Here. We're, uh, we're reading a uh, chapter out of uh, In God We Trust, All Others Pay Cash. In fact, it's the first chapter, and uh, the title of this chapter, of this, of this work, uh, which was published, by the way, in 1961 by Doubleday and is available still in paperback, uh, the, the paperback company in this case being Dolphin, if you're curious about picking up a copy. It's called In God We Trust. All others pay cash, and it's Dolphin, number C486. And now I go on with the story. Uh, 
this is uh, the first chapter. Of course, it's, uh, I must also add quickly, if you're following it, some people follow it, by the way, as I read. Uh, it's been uh, edited for air because it's far too long to read in the short time we have. However, there's the Christmas window in Goldblatt's. This is fiction, by the way, for those of you who are curious. Uh, there are no people of this type really around, but it is a fiction story and originally appeared in Playboy. It was a good year, maybe a great one. Like a swelling Christmas balloon, the excitement mounted until the whole town tossed restlessly in bed and made plans for the big day. Already my own scheme was well underway. My personal dream, casually, carefully, calculatingly, I had booby-trapped the house with copies of Open Road for Boys, all open to Red Rider's slit-eyed face. My father, a great John Reader, found himself for the first time in his life in alien literary waters. My mother, grabbing for her copy of Screen Romances, found herself cleverly euchred into reading a Red Rider sales pitch. I had stuck a copy of Open Road for Boys inside the cover, showing Clark Gable clasping Loretta Young to his heaving breast. At breakfast, I hinted that there was a rumor of loose bears in the neighborhood. I was ready to deal with them, if I had the proper equipment, of course. At first, my mother and the old man did not rise to the bait, and I began to grow anxious, and, of course, inevitably, overplayed my hand. Christmas was only two weeks away. I couldn't waste time with subtlety or droll innuendo. My brother, occasionally emerging from under the daybed during this critical period, was already well involved in some private little brother persiflage of his own, involving an erector set with motor, capable of constructing drawbridges, Eiffel Towers, Ferris wheels, and operating guillotines. I knew that if he got wind of my scheme, all was lost. He would then begin wheedling and whining for what I wanted, which would result in nobody scoring, since he was obviously too young for deadly weapons. So I cleverly pretended that what I wanted, nothing more, was just a simple, utilitarian, unpretentious Sandy Andy, a highly symbolic educational toy popular at the time, consisting of a kind of funnel under which was mounted a tiny conveyor belt of little scoop-like gondolas that came with a bag of white sand that was poured into the funnel. The sand, tripling out of the bottom into the gondola, set the belt in motion. As each gondola was filled, it moved back down the track to be replaced by another, which, when filled, moved down another notch, and endlessly they went, dumping sand out at the bottom of the track and starting up the back loop to be refilled again, on and on, until all the sand was deposited in the red cup at the bottom of the track. The kid then emptied the cup into the funnel and started over again, ceaselessly, senselessly, round and round. How like life itself. It was the perfect toy to teach a kid what it's all about. Through my brain, however, there dashed and danced visions of six guns snapped from the hip and shattering bottles, an annoying, nameless frenzy of impending ecstasy. Well, I had to do something about it. And so one day, my mother, leaning over a pot of simmering oatmeal, suddenly asked out of the blue, What would you like for Christmas? Horrified, I heard myself blurt, A Red Rider BB gun! Without pausing or even missing a stroke with her tablespoon, she shot back, Oh no, you'll shoot out your eyes. It was a classic mother BB gun block. I was sunk. That deadly phrase, used many times before by hundreds of mothers, was not surmountable by any means known to kiddom. I had really booted it. Such was my mania, 
my desire for a Red Rider carbine that I immediately began to rebuild the dike. <laughs> I was just kidding. Uh, even though Flick is getting one, you know. <laughs> Flick's getting one. <laughs> that was a lie, of course. I guess, uh, well, uh, what I'd like is a Sandy Andy, I guess. <laughs> I watched the back of her Chinese red chenille bathrobe anxiously, waiting for any sign that my shaft had struck home. They're dangerous. I don't want anybody shooting their eyes out. The boom was lowered, and I was under it. With leaden heart and frozen feet, I waddled to school. At recess time, little banks of kids huddled together for warmth amid the craggy gray snowbanks and the howling gale. The telephone wires overhead whistled like banshees, while the trapeze rings and the swings clanked hollowly as Schwartz and Flick and Bruner and I discussed the most important thing, next to what I'm going to get for Christmas, which was what I'm getting my mother and father for Christmas. We talked in hushed, hoarse whispers to guard against security leaks. Schwartz, his eyes darting like a foreign agent, leaned over and said, I'm getting my father a new flip gun. Sheer creative brilliance, a flip gun. That's for spraying mosquitoes. What a fantastic creative idea. I'm getting my old man a rose that squirts water, said Flick. So we talked back and forth. I wouldn't even discuss what I was going to get. Not a way. And so time went on. And more and more it began to look like I was not going to get my BB gun. And so finally, at the far end of Toyland in Goldblatt's, which was on the third floor, is a Santa Claus. A big Santa Claus, sitting there on his throne, asking kids what they wanted for Christmas. I figured I'd try it. On a snowy throne framed with red and white candy canes and a suspended squadron of plastic angels blowing silver trumpets in a glowing golden grotto sat the man, the connection, Santa Claus himself. In northern Indiana, Santa Claus is a big man, both spiritually and physically, and the Santa Claus at Goldblatt's was officially recognized among kids as being unquestionably the Santa Claus in person. Eight feet tall, shiny, high, black patent leather boots, a nimbus cloud of snow-white beard, and a real thrumming, belt-creaking stomach. No pillows or stuffing. I mean a real stomach. A long line of nervous, fidgeting, greedy urchins wound in and out of the aisles, shoving, sniffling, and above all waiting, waiting to tell him what they wanted. In those days, it wasn't... It was not easy to disbelieve fully in Santa Claus, because there wasn't much else to believe in. There were many theological arguments over the nature of the existence of the affirmation and denial of his, of his existence. However, ten days before zero hour, the air pulsing to the strains of we three kings of Orient are, the store windows garlanded with green and red wreaths and the, and the toy department bristling with sleds, there were few who dared to disbelieve. As each day crept on to the next like some glacier, an arthritic glacier, the atheists among us grew moodier, less and less sure of ourselves, until finally, in each scoffing heart, was the floating, drifting, nagging suspicion. Well, you never can tell. It did not pay to take chances, and so we waited in line for our turn. Behind me, a skinny seven-year-old girl wearing a brown stocking cap and gold-rimmed glasses hit her little brother steadily to keep him in line. She had green teeth. He was wearing an aviator's helmet with the goggles pulled down over his eyes. His galoshes were open and his maroon corduroy knickers were damp. Behind them, a fat boy in a huge 
Sheepskin coat stood numbly, his eyes watering in vague fear, his nose red and running. Ahead of my brother and me, a long, uneven procession of stocking caps, mufflers, mittens, and earmuffs inched painfully forward, while in the hazy distance, in his magic glowing cave, Mr. Klaus sat, each in turn on his broad red knee, and whispered to exultant dream after exultant dream. Closer and closer we crept. My mother and father had stashed us in line and disappeared. We were alone. Nothing stood between us and our confessor, our benefactor, our dispenser of BB guns, and 297 other beseechers at the throne. Over the serpentine line roared a great sea of sound, tinkling bells, recorded carols, the hum and clatter of electric trains, and a record that over and over and over and over again played jingle bells over and over and over. We stood in line. And Santa Claus got closer and closer, his great red form twinkling in the golden light. One moment, my brother and I were safely back in the tricycle and Irish mail department, and the next instant, we stood at the at the foot of Mount Olympus itself. Santa's enormous, gleaming white snowdrift of a throne soared 10 or 15 feet above our heads in a mountain of red and green tinsel, carpeted in flashing Christmas tree bulbs and gleaming ornaments. Each kid in turn was proud of a tiny staircase at the side of the mountain on Santa's left. And as he passed, his last customer onto his right and down a red chute, back into oblivion for another year. And over it all, the music was deafening. Jingle bells, jingle bells, jingle all the way. Jingle bells, jingle all the way. Sung by an echo-chambered chorus that kept going on and on. High above me in the sparkling gloom, I could see my brother's yellow and brown stocking cap. He's up there on Santa's knee. He squatted briefly. I heard a booming ho, 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 and then a high, thin, familiar trailing wail, one that I'd heard billions of times before, as my brother broke into his primal cry of fear. A claw dug into my elbow, and I was launched upward toward the mountaintop. My kid brother had disappeared. I had long before decided to level with Santa, to really lay it on the line. No Sandy Andy, no kid stuff. I was going to ride the range with Red Rider. Santa Claus was going to have to get the straight poop. And what's your name, little boy? What's your name, little boy? His booming baritone crashed out over the chipmunks that were singing. He reached down and neatly hooked my sheepskin collar, swooping me upward. And there I sat on the biggest knee in creation, looking down and out over the endless expanse of Toyland and down to the tiny figures. What's your name, little boy? What's your name? The record ended briefly, and it started up again. Over and over and over, they sang. Uh, uh, my head wouldn't work. I couldn't think. Uh, what? Uh, 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 was all I could say. Uh, uh, that's a fine name, little boy. That's a fine name. Ho, ho, ho. Santa's warm, moist breath poured down over me through some cosmic steam radiator. Santa smoked camels, it smelled, just like my Uncle Charles. Ho, ho, ho. My mind had gone blank. Frantic, I tried to remember what it was I wanted for Christmas, what I wanted. I was blowing it. I couldn't think. My head was gone. Santa kept going, ho, ho, ho. What would you like? Wouldn't you like a nice football, young man? Ho, ho. My mind groped. Football, football. Who the hell wants a football? All I could say was, yeah, I 
God, a football. My mind slammed into gear already. Santa was sliding me off my knee and towards the red chute. I didn't want a football. And I could see behind me already another white-faced kid was bobbing upward. I want a Red Rider BB gun with a special Red Rider sight and a compass and a stock and a sundial. I shouted, Ho, ho, ho! You'll shoot your eye out, kid! Ho, ho, ho! Merry Christmas! Down the chute I went. Down the chute I went. I've never been struck by a bolt of lightning, but I knew how it must feel. The back of my head was numb. My feet clanked leadenly beneath me. As I returned to earth at the bottom of the chute, another snow-white lady shoved the famous free gift that they were giving out into my mitten. I got my free gift. It was a barely recognizable plastic Kris Kringle stamped with bold red letters. Merry Christmas. Shop at Goldblatt's. Free parking. He spun me back out into Toyland. My kid brother stood under a counter piled high with raggedy and dolls. From nowhere, my mother and father appeared. Did you tell Santa what you wanted? The old man asked. Yeah. Did he ask if you've been a good boy? No. Ah, don't worry, he knows. I'll bet he knows about that basement window you busted. Don't worry, he knows. <laughs> Maybe that was it. My mind reeled with the realization maybe Santa did know how rotten I'd been and that the football was only a threat. It was not only a threat, it was a punishment. There had been for generations on Cleveland Street a theory that if you were not a good boy, quote, you would reap your just desserts under the Christmas tree. Maybe I was good business. Oh, God, no, no baby gun. A damn football. The next few days groaned by. Day after day it went past. And then we were going to have our school party. Everybody was to bring paper wreaths, and Crayola Santa Claus were drawn. In the corner of our room, atop a desk decorated with crepe paper rosettes, sat our Christmas grab bag. Every kid in the class had bought a gift for the grab bag. I had bought for Helen Weathers a large, amazingly lifelike, jet-black rubber tarantula. <laughs> I cackled fiendishly as I wrapped it. And even now, its beady green eyes glared from somewhere in the depths of the Christmas grab bag. I knew she'd like it. It would be great. Miss Bodkin, after recess, then said to all the kids, Now I want all of you boys and girls to write a theme. A theme, a rotten theme before Christmas. What is this, a theme before Christmas? I want you to write a theme entitled, What I Want for Christmas. Aha! The clouds lifted. I saw a faint gleam of light at the other end of the black cave of gloom. Ever since my visit to Santa... Yes, I could write what I wanted in a theme. I remember to this day how I wrote it. It's cagey, winged phrases and glorious imagery. Quote, what I want for Christmas is a Red Rider BB gun with a compass in the stock and this thing that tells time. I think everybody should have a Red Rider BB gun. They are very good at Christmas. I don't think a football is a very good Christmas present. I wrote it on blue-lined paper from my tablet and handed it in. It had to have good margins. Miss Bodkin was very tough on uneven margins. And I waited. The final days before vacation dawned dank and misty with swirling eddies of ice wind that rattled the porch swing. Warren G. Harding School glowed like a jeweled oasis among the sooty snowbanks. Lights blazed from all the windows, and in every room the Christmas party spirit had kids writhing in their seats. 
The morning winged by, and after lunch, Miss Bodkin announced that the rest of the afternoon would be party time. She handed out our graded themes, folded with our names scrawled on the outside. A big red B in Miss Bodkin's direct hand glowed on my literary effort. I opened it, expecting Miss Bodkin's usual penciled corrections, which ran along the lines of, Watch your margins, or check spelling. But this time, a personal note leaped right out of my theme. It flew around the room and fastened itself leech-like on the back of my neck. You'll shoot your eye out. Merry Christmas. Good God. I sat in my seat, shipping water from every seam. Was there no end to this conspiracy of irrational prejudice against Red Rider and his peacemaker? Nervously, I pulled out of my desk the door to hear back copy of Open Road for Boys, which I'd carried with me everywhere, waking and sleeping for the past few weeks. Red Rider's handsome orange face with the big balloon coming out of his mouth did not look discouraged or defeated. Red must have been a kid once himself, and they must have told him the same thing when he asked for his first Colt 44 for Christmas. I stuffed my tattered dreams back into my geography book. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? The glee club filed in and sang, Oh, little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. It was party. Who cared about party? That already been squashed. You'll shoot your eyes out, kid. Even from Miss Botkin. Mechanically, my jaws crunched on the concrete hard rock candy, and I stared hopelessly out of the window, past cutout Santas and garland red and green chains. It was getting dark. It was all over. It was Christmas Eve the next day. And all day long, we wrapped presents, but it was not Christmas for me, for I knew, I knew it was all over. All over. And we wrapped and wrapped and wrapped. Early the next morning, I woke up. It was a gray, grim morning. It was barely light. In fact, it was just after six in the morning. I had no real hope. A football, maybe. Maybe a rubber dagger. Maybe a lead zeppelin wound up and ran around on the floor. Who wants that junk? Who cared about fire trucks, Lincoln logs, erector sets? But who knows? I was the first up. Bright, bright morning. Sun gleaming down. I came tearing down waited for the for the packages and there they were under the tree who knows during the night a great snow had fallen covering the gritty remains of past snowfalls and I was alone my kid brother was still asleep my mother and father were asleep in the bedroom I looked at the packages and there under the tree was a long thin flat package marked with my name, and it said, From Santa. I ripped it open. My God, it was a baby gun. A Red Rider baby gun. There was a pack of babies with it. And a rolled up tube of targets at five o'clock in the morning. I put on my bathrobe. I pulled on my corduroy knickers, my goloshes. 
and I eased myself out into the cold, feeding the gun in my hand. I had a Red Rider BB gun. The temperature was maybe 20 below zero. I trudged down the steps, barely discernible in the soft fluff, and now I stood in the clean air, ready to consummate my great, long, painful, ecstatic love affair. I had gotten a BB gun! Santa Claus had come through! Brushing the snow off the third step, I propped up a gleaming Red Rider target, the black rings and bullseye standing out starkly against the snowy whiteness. Above the bullseye, Red Rider watched me, his eyes following my every move. I backed off into the snow a good twenty feet, slammed the stock down onto my left kneecap, holding the barrel with my mittened left hand, flipped the mitten off my right hand, and hooking my fingers in the icy carbine lever, cocked my blue steel buddy for the first time. I heard the BB click into the chamber, the spring inside twanged sharply, and with a clunk she rested, taut, hard, and loaded, in my chapped, bluing hands. For the first time I sighted down over that cold barrel, the heart-shaped rear sight almost brushing my nose and the blade of the front sight wavering back and forth, up and down, and finally coming to rest, sharply cutting the heart and laying dead on the innermost ring. Red Rider didn't move a muscle, his stetson flaring out above the target as he waited. Slowly I squeezed the frosty trigger back, back, back. For one instant I thought, why, it doesn't work. The BB gun doesn't work. We'll have to send it back. And then, crack! The gun jerked upward, and for a brief instant, everything stood still. The target twitched, a tiny tick, and then a massive wallop. A gigantic, slashing impact crashed across the left side of my face. My horn-rimmed glasses spun away from my head into the snowbank. For several seconds, I stood stunned, not knowing what had happened. Warm blood trailing down over my cheek and onto the walnut stock of my Red Rider 200-shot range model BB gun. My God, I was shot in the eye! I lowered the barrel convulsively. The target still stood. Red Rider was unscratched. A ragged, uncontrolled tidal wave of pain throbbing and singing rocked my head. The ricocheting BB had missed my eye by maybe a quarter of an inch, and a long, angry, bloody welt extended from my cheekbone almost to my ear. It was divine retribution. Red Rider had struck again. Another bad guy gunned down. It was me. Frantically, I scrambled for my glasses, and then the most catastrophic blow of all, they were pulverized. My glasses were broken. I put the horn rims over on my nose. The front door creaked open. Just then, my mother looked out of the door and said, Now be careful. Don't shoot. Don't shoot your eye. Now be careful of your new BB gun. She hadn't seen yet. My eye was almost shot out. Oh, my God. And then she saw my broken glasses. She says, how did you break your glasses? I said, an icicle fell off the roof. It bounced off the gun and it bounced up and hit me. I began to cry, faking it at first. But then the shock and the fear took over. It was the real thing. She says, now, there, you're all right. It's just a little bump. You're lucky you didn't cut your eye. Those icicles can kill people, you know. You're really lucky. Hold this rag on it and don't wake your brother. I had faked it. I had pulled it off. I had pulled it off. I had convinced Mother that the icicle had broken my glasses. But I knew I had shot my eye out. I learned something that day. 
Maybe they know something. They were right. And there I sat in the horn and hard art and sipped my coffee. Yes. I wondered whether Red Rider was still dispensing retribution and frontier justice of old. Considering the number of kids I see with broken glasses, I suspect he is. Kids, you'll shoot your eye out. And that is the classic story from In God We Trust, All Others Pay Cash, that we read every winter at the same time, every Christmas Eve. It's entitled Duel in the Snow, or Red Rider Nails the Cleveland Street Kid. My God, there's something they know. Be careful. Have a good Christmas. I hope it worked out well. And watch your driving, Dad. Maybe they're right when they say don't drink and drive at the same time, in spite of the fact that you drive better after you've drunk. Right, kid? Uh-huh. Shoot your eye out. Look out. Wednesdays, 11 p.m. Eastern, right here on ThatMetalStation.com.